Welcome to Wisco Dice! Hey yo, I'm your host with the most, I am the Conesy with the most, and I am joined by... Hey Brian, sometimes Stark Waving Matt is here. Hello everyone, it's Justin, the Meeple Champion. And I'm Matt, the Ghost Walker. And this is Suzanne. And this is episode 98 of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast. And today is October 9th, 2022. First off, we're going to go ahead and talk about what we're going to cover in today's episode. It's a, uh, our review of Night Cage. Uh, but before that, I do have a couple of Wisco Dice news topics to talk about. First off, I just wanted to go ahead and give a big shout out that we're going to have a Batman miniature game tournament on October 29th here at Noble Knight Games in Fitchburg, Wisconsin. So if you play the Batman miniature game and want to travel out to the long Halloween, all the information will be in the show notes for how you can sign up, register, and what the rules are for the event. Another big announcement that we have is board game night at Misty Mountain Games at Man- in Madison, Wisconsin, the last Friday of the month from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Wisco Dice will be there every every uh, last Friday of the month for board games, so please come on down and join us. Happy to teach you some games from the Wisco Dice board game library. But now, with our most recent news announcements covered, let's go ahead and dive into the games we have been playing all right the first one that we were able to get everybody together for is a game called phantom inc the publisher is resonim the playtime is really about 15 minutes and that's pretty accurate it's a very quick play can support up to four to eight players Uh, so like i said we all got together and played that actually within the last week Mm-hmm. And uh, this is this is a game that uh, um, Conzi and Suzanne picked up this year at Gen Con, and it plays very similar to Code Names, but I like to say it has a pretty good twist to it. You split up into two teams, and instead of a Code Master, you have a Spirit who leads your team, and the rest of the people are mediums. So both teams are just trying to figure out the word that the spirits are sharing, and they have the same word. Basically, the mediums take turn asking a couple of questions each turn, and the spirit elects to answer one of those questions about the secret object. And so the spirit will start writing letters on a sheet of paper, and when the mediums think they know what the word the spirit is speaking, they'll tell the spirit to stop. But the other side, your opponents, don't know what question you asked. So it adds a little bit of a kind of guessing game because you can see the the questions or you can see the answers that the ghosts have given the other side but you're kind of trying to put together your questions and their answers to try to solve it and when you think you know it you get to start writing it out and the ghost will tell you whether it's accurate or not but i love this game this game was great this like game took everything that codenames gives me from a feels and put it on both sides of it. So normally in code names, you'd feel a lot of pressure as the as the person who's giving out the clues because you know, obviously, you know the pattern or whatever you're trying to solve for. But but now, like both sides are having to give, like, be very careful with how they're giving information, like selecting the uh, selecting which card of your two question or which card of your hand of cards you're going to give as a question. You know, the two questions to the spirit, and then 
try and then the spirit having to go, okay, how much information am I going to give out with the answer? And, and this, like the, there's a lot of pressure. You feel that same, that same kind of spy master pressure on both sides. At least I did. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but that like just, it just, that was cool. And it was super fast played. I actually plays probably a little bit more, more quickly. I thought than uh code names does, which plays really fast too. So uh, I was going to say, like, I think this tops my, like, kind of more social kind of group games for sure. Like, it's definitely the one I've been the most excited about. I generally have liked the kind of word and clue games and stuff like that. I don't know. This one I really enjoyed for some reason. I think I kind of liked the more narrow scope of it in that a game was so quick or whatever. Like, you said code names was pretty fast, but I feel like my games have drawn out a lot where you're just, like, thinking forever trying to get this one word to match everything or your clue you know to match all these things you want to pick and not have them pick you know the opponent's stuff or whatever but where you just kind of concentrate on the one object you have like the questions that kind of lead you to only think about this one specific clue to give like i really kind of like the structure of it and then having both teams working towards the same thing was fun and not knowing the question like but seeing what you think the word is probably on the pad on their side and stuff like i really enjoyed it so this one definitely tops the list for me. As the ghost in this game, it, it, it's a cool challenge that you're put to. It's not codenames where you have to come up with the, the perfect word to match all these, as many as you can get. Instead, you kind of have, you, you can pick any word you want and answer the question really simply. Like, uh, you know, you could just be answering the question, what color is it? Sometimes you have the choice to kind of choose how specific you are in your answer as the ghost because you want your team to win so you can't give too much information to the other side but you still have to answer the question so it's a cool balance of of finding a word that's gives enough information to your team to answer their question and help them understand what the what the clue is and then try to not give enough information to the other team at the same time really cool yeah this game's really fun yeah and i'm just gonna add that Another positive for this game over code names for me is that when it's not your team's turn, you aren't just saying they're doing nothing. You can be working with your team to try and figure out which of the yes. questions you can answer. So the game the moves along. The a lot faster. Yes. Yeah, like code names can be really slow with that. That's usually my slow thing in code names. It's just where, you know, you spend forever with both of the other people on the other team deliberating it. I don't know. It kind of can drag out, so... Yeah, no, I, I get it. And this was one of our top games that we were anticipating going into Gen Con. I'm super glad we snagged a copy before they sold out. But yeah, if you get a chance to acquire this, if you're trying to choose between this and code names, this this in our opinion, or my opinion anyways, is by far the better game to get. So uh code names being super popular, this game really should be you know, on the shelf instead. Now I, it really is a replacement for code names in my mind. Well, this is a, this is might be a first we've got five very positive Everybody reviews like from this group. So Ben, yeah. why don't you talk about our next game? Yeah. So we'll dive into Obscurio from Libel, uh, publisher Libelud. Uh, hopefully I didn't butcher that too much. It's a game that's very similar to uh, one of my favorite games, Mysterium. Uh, has a very similar playtime at about 40 minutes and plays up to t- uh, from anywhere from two to eight players. I uh, actually was re- when I was reviewing the rules, I actually feel like this might play okay at like a two or a three player count where Mysterium kind of struggles at that that size. The theme of this one is that the players are working collaboratively 
collaboratively to escape from a magical library. So one player takes on the role of the Grimoire, which is basically the same thing as the ghost in Mysterium. They're the ones that are going to be giving the clues effectively and know the secrets uh, of how to get out of the, the, the labyrinth of library rooms. And then the rest of the players take on the role of the wizards that they're trying to get, get through. The one real twist here is that one of those players is a secret traitor. And that means that uh, basically during the game, uh, one player, uh, the, the spirit player, will get to see the secret door card, and then we will draw a number of traps that may make things more difficult, will always make things more difficult for the players, the wizard players. Then everybody closes their eyes and the, the, the dastardly traitor player that's trying to ruin the game for everybody else gets to pick one or two cards from uh, a selection of eight cards to add to the secret door stack that they think might be close to what the, the grimoire is telling the players is a clue. Then you fill out the stack so there's six total doors of these random cards and the players the wizards then have to all try to agree on which one is the secret door out of this chamber to advance to the end of the game really like i i played this this, this game now twice the first time i played it i did not care for it at all and i think i missed mechanically a couple of things like how it was really working and so it just kind of coasted along and and didn't get the the same experience that I got out of Mysterium. This time, sitting in the Grimoire chair and, and whatnot, for me, it was such a different experience, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm actually really excited about getting it back to the table, and I was kind of excited to hear when we played it, hey, can we just play it again? <laughs> so it was cool in that regards, uh, and, I'm, and I'm very blown away. My personal take, Mysterium is still a better game, but this game was actually pretty darn fun. So I'm kind of curious for the rest of you, because we all got the chance to play this. What did you guys think? It is made by the same people as Mysterium, right? It is. I, I don't mm. think you quite specified that. But so I've still been thinking about it, like compared to Mysterium going back and forth. Like I kind of like the independent, like you have your own pictures and you're voting on your own thing in Mysterium a little bit versus like the collaborative um, effort in obscurio here like that was maybe my only thing i thought the traps can kind of suck sometimes but i guess it's good to have that element in it to not make it too difficult and then the traitor is definitely interesting like i don't know if i'd enjoy playing as a traitor but it's kind of cool to have like an actual person working against you a little bit rather than just like chance especially with like the image cards or whatever like having just kind of like that mm -hmm. actual brain picking out some tricks in mm -hmm. there for you is yeah like pretty cool so regarding the the trader mechanic i i don't always like games with hidden trader stuff in them uh i feel like i think it's hard to play the trader a lot of times like especially if, hard if you me. haven't done it before <laughs> ever play that game before like what mm -hmm. to do how to kind of work it uh but what's nice about this is when you're the trader all you really have to do is kind of put some doubt into the other people as to what the ghost is trying to, or the grimoire, I should say, not the ghost, mm -hmm. uh, what the, what the grimoire is trying to point at or what their, which card it is. So as long as you introduce some doubt, you're always going to kind of chip away at the non-traders uh, to kind of advance yourself. So it, it, it's not, it's not too hard as a trader. Like you can 
do yeah. an okay job without. Yeah, you can kind of do it behind the scenes without yeah. having to be like openly manipulative. Like, yeah, you yeah. have to be in some other games. Like it's kind of built into the mechanic. I don't know. What does the expert trader <laughs> have to say about this? So I'm going to say I do not generally care for social deduction games, and I hate being the trader. <laughs> hate, hate, hate being the trader. Let us know what you really think. <laughs> I hate being the trader. For this game, though, I've played it twice. I've been the trader both times. <laughs> And you know what? It's actually really fun being the traitor in this game. Because yeah. who cares if people figure out that you're that you're the traitor? It's not it's not as detrimental to your gameplay as it and you still get to keep doing what you're doing. Uh as a traitor, you get to pick two pictures that you think are gonna help mislead the other players. So you've got this extra little action you get to do and you still are playing and picking rooms and you still as a trader don't know which the correct picture mm. is. So, you know, it's it's still you still get that deduction of the images, which is a yeah. lot of fun and I will totally be the trader anytime in this game if I have a say, but you don't. The so. uh <laughs> the the thing that really caught me was like compare and contrast with Mysteria, which is oh, yeah, which is I think totally fair is I liked the mechanic of there's a mechanic where the grimoire can point at something in the picture. And that's one of the things I've played the ghost and I've played the investigator or the mediums in Mysterium. And as the ghost, there's nothing more frustrating than staring at them <laughs> in your head, screaming, Oh my God, I, I, like I couldn't have painted it clearer and they're like, Oh, it must be the color blue. And you're like, no, it's the damn crib <laughs> in the middle of the freaking room. Uh, but you know, the thing that I liked about this one is it gives the grimoire and not always, cause there are traps that mess with this. Um, the, there's this function where the grimoire can actually point to something in the picture. And most times I felt like that really helped us. There were a couple times where, uh, we'll just say the grimoire pointed at something and we got way too focused on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> yeah. it was an interesting twist that I think takes some of the difficulty of Mysterium out. Yeah. But there were plenty of things that we screwed up and uh, made our lives way harder. I think having all of us pick the wrong door on the first round was very good choice. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, that really put a little bit of stress on uh, picking the right doors like moving forward. The first, first couple of rounds, we did not do, do very, very well. well. Until no. the trader was revealed, you did not do very yeah. well. Yeah, we had a good oh. And I don't think that, that had a factor to it. No, either. it no. didn't. It's just, the next batch of doors were really a lot easier for me with the clues that came out for me to be able to help push yeah. you in the right and but they I mean, were a that's... lot more difficult for the trader and for the ones I had to choose from well, that, that's mm. a similar mechanic though to me for me though to the way Mysterium works because sometimes you just have awful cards and it's like like I don't know sometimes all the cards that were there except for the one that was obviously the door we had nothing to do with what <laughs> right. the so, one yeah. big thing that's different here is that in Mysterium you at least have control over the cards you're picking from mm. and in this it's a little bit you're stuck with the cards that are that are correct drawn out and you have to you're picking those pointers more than yeah you get to be picture. more yeah. specific about what part of that card is your clue 
But sometimes those the art on those cards did not match up at all with anything. I'm like, how do I make this thing match at all to what this this particular uh, card is? Overall, though, I thought it was a lot of fun. Like you said, it was a it was a nice. I don't know if I want to call it lighter version of Mysterium. It's just a different take on it, and yeah, yeah the, the traps kind of like added a totally different element than like core Mysterium. Because I, to your point, I think Mysterium's more of a competitive. I mean, you're still you need you're working a, together, but like you need everybody to get kinda. the right answer. But I yeah. still want to be more right than you are. Right. Whereas in this one, we fundamentally we we all get you're supposed to, to escape together, together yeah. or we don't. Right. So one other thing, like I don't think we highlighted, but in Obscurio here, like with your pictures, like if you get it wrong in the one round, it's all wiped out. Like so, whatever confusion you might have got from the grimoire on your previous guess like you start over completely like mm-hmm. you're trying to guess a completely different door picture now so yep. that's kind of a different mechanic like it can really write the ship more rather than if they had like a <laughs> terrible focus on your first couple pictures you had given them like you could in mysterium one gripe with it and i don't think i highlighted in liking having like the individual pictures was there's only those two pictures in the grimoire and then the you know they put the butterfly markers on there and it's really hard for everybody at the table to see that, especially when you're pointing to this little thing in the picture and you can kind of carefully slide it around and like try not to move the things. But like maybe if they could have, you know, made it magnetic or something so you wouldn't be worried about bumping them more to be able to share it easier or like just somewhere better way where everybody at the table could see it. I think it would be like one kind of whatever yeah. mechanical improvement the, on the, the head count here is i think the yeah. thing i think we're because you could play Mysterium with people, excels like, at a bigger head count yeah. this game yeah. with the way the components and whatnot are i think excels with a slightly smaller head count yeah i have seen it where the trader who gets to pick these extra doors to toss in was sitting really far away from the grimoire and so they just couldn't see and you can't move around because you're going to give right. away that you're the trader so that that's kind of a tricky pit too if you have like a long table and you're really far away from the mm-hmm. <laughs> the yeah. cards you're not gonna be able to see well to, to i think pick well after enough. the first round or two which we didn't do as well in, i mean that's when we started actually sliding the grimoire around the table because we just couldn't yeah so all right well that is obscurio from libelud Check out whiskodice.com for links to the games that we just discussed. But with that, let's go ahead and move into our hobby corner where we talk about our miniature hobby projects that we've been working on. I guess I'll kick us off here. I think on the last show, I had, I think that was kind of my, I don't know, maybe second foray into like the Bane crew. I had recently in the last show, I think, finished assembling all of my Bane crew models. And then the kind of goal was to have them ready for the long Halloween tournament at the end of the month, but I was on vacation for like half of September and then other things have kind of, I think next that happening, I focused down to like four models that I like filled in the gaps on their bases and undercoated and stuff. And I have um, like base coats on one model, but that's kind of all the farther I've got. So I highly doubt I'll finish all four of those for the long Halloween. So I kind of bumped my goal to have those done for renegade, but slowly progressing on them i hope in this month i'll actually get more time to work on them so how about you justin i think you actually got some yeah. <laughs> hobby here uh, yeah it, it's october so uh i'm i've gotten the mansions of madness second edition back out i'll probably be playing that uh but uh and so well so i was looking at the different minis in there and 
there's a variety of sizes of different things, but one of the minis is like a, a big, I think they call it a star spawn, but it looks, it's a Cthulhu thing with big old wings, but it's really big compared to, you know, a normal size miniature. And so really I have kind of a question. I, I, I am worried about priming it and losing definition. So like when I have a bigger model or especially when I think it has some deep crevices, right? So there's like lots of space for paint to pool. Maybe, you know, do you guys got any tips for priming it and how to do that properly? So it doesn't build up and I lose a bunch of definition. A couple of the bigger minis I did back in the day, I did a chaos demon themed uh, dwarf army many years ago. And there are some fairly large chaos demon minis that kind of mm-hmm. have a similar thing to what you're talking about. Wings there. and yeah. Um, what I would sometimes do is, and I always recommend light, many light coats of primer if you need to. But I would sometimes, because there's all sorts of weird angles, especially on the chaos uh, models, is sometimes I would actually just flip the mini over because it's sometimes very difficult if you're spraying more from a, say, top-down angle Mm -hmm. to get it to cover the undersides. I would sometimes, once it was completely dry, flip it over Mm -hmm. and get a few light coats from the model flipped over because then you're you're getting that better coverage on that other side. Ben, have you had anything? Follow the instructions on the can of primer <laughs> that too <laughs> no this is a this is a big one so people oftentimes will don't spray the can either too close or too far away from the target mm. no follow the cans and the follow the instructions in the can the other thing is when you're if you're using a rattle can and you're getting your rattle can ready to go before you spray first thing you want to do is there's that there's that ball bearing or whatever that mixes the primer with the gas or whatever inside the can I don't, don't ask me exactly what to do but you want it to spin in like a circle without shaking first so you actually spin it a bunch because that helps any paint that's settled to the bottom will help start mixing it hmm. and then you sh- and then you rattle shake i learned that one from a games workshop guy mm-hmm. years ago and so yeah you just spin the can a bunch and then you shake, and then you maybe you spin again, then you shake, and then spray. Your first spray should never be on a miniature. It should be like off in a general direction somewhere so that you can see that the spray is coming out evenly. Right. Now you spray your model. And just do nice even passes. Don't sit there and hold it over the model or you're going to cake it on. Just <laughs> okay. even passes at the at the recommended distance away from the miniature. And then if you if you didn't get it, you know, if there's coverage issues, then you can rotate it, you know, once it's dried and do another pass, mm-hmm. again, recommended. And, and you can kind of rinse and repeat that. And generally speaking, you won't have any problems. That said, if you're really worried about it, you could move away from a, a rattle can primer and do like a brush-on primer where you sure. have a lot more control. Sure. There's some really good brush-on primer products. I've been using a Vallejo white brush-on primer recently. Myself, I've really actually, I'm not a big fan of Vallejo products, which I know is weird for a lot of people. People love Vallejo, uh, but that I've really, really enjoyed using that Vallejo white primer that I'm using, and I'll I'll continue to use that. Yeah, I think I would join on the same thing you guys were saying, and definitely like breaking it down from different angles and like spraying a coat at a time rather than trying to cover everything at one time. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like what Ben was saying, like just to not overload the model. And I think 
I would definitely uh, approach it from different angles, like especially on a big model where you can't get underneath and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I'd lay it, like I usually do the bottoms first. I think it sounded like you, Matt, maybe you would spray like everything and then see what you missed and kind of come back and get those angles. Once it's dry, yeah. you could really do it either way. And then I don't know if these are pre-assembled or whatever, but like if it does have big wings, like you could always leave those off or something and prime them separate if it's something you actually assemble. But yeah, these ones are uh, pre-assembled. It's just sure. like a big molded okay. thing. But uh, so that yeah, wouldn't really yeah, work here. But yeah. Yeah, that that creates part of the problem, right? The, mm-hmm. the wings are on there, stuck on, you know, sort of deep and stuff. But yeah, when I saw your question, like I think I missed the larger mini part, and I thought you would be worried about losing definition on a smaller mini. But let's see. That said, these are mansions and madness models. There's not yeah, right. that much detail, <laughs> so unless you're right. like hosing them down with primer, you're probably okay. Yeah. But I totally get it. Like that, that is a, actually a really good question that a lot yeah. of new hobbyists mm-hmm. struggle with or are afraid to ask. So yeah, I totally get it. And no, yeah, you guys told me a bunch of stuff that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. so, it's awesome. Most of it's the instructions are on the can, and nobody reads the can. Yeah, I usually check it out a little bit, or I like use the same. Like I'll check it Says out the first the engineer. time. I use the same thing like <laughs> most of the time. Like I was thinking about it, and like I don't know, white primer seems to be more difficult. Like that's the only one I've ever had problems with. Like I don't think I've ever had problems with a black primer. Like now I pretty much just use a Rust-Oleum. Like I used to buy like the miniature, like company ones oh, yeah. and stuff. But I'll just get a can Cheap, of Rust-Oleum and it works. Rust-Oleum. Fine, but... <laughs> like <laughs> plastic flat works on works on everything mm-hmm. primer yep. yeah and like blacks has always seemed easier with like less application problems where like i don't know white sometimes has gotten like dusty on me i think that's like a humidity thing or something possibly I know what you're like, talking about. a lot of different stuff like yeah, that I've had that problem so. with black too before okay. though I'll yeah maybe it gets a luck, fuzzy look to it, yeah. it the, and i think i would i would question if the coverage issues are more noticeable with white because white shows up against the the color of the plastic better than black does like especially in crevices and whatnot you may not notice it the coverage issue as much but right. sure but i think products have gotten a lot better in probably like since 20 years ago i feel oh, like i used to have insane. a lot of problems yeah. like you were saying with shaking and stuff like at least back when like talking to like regular spray can can paint people like some some companies don't even like need to put like the ball bearing in them anymore. Like you can just shake them and that's fine. But people expect to get that rattle with their can and stuff like that. So <laughs> uh, just the products have become a lot better, but mm-hmm. you definitely still want to shake it up and everything like that. And I don't know. I guess just be careful. Or as Ben but... said, follow the instructions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, is, yeah. what does it say on the can? Like it is, it's a big thing that people don't yeah, follow. And, it, and, it, and, it, and pay attention to the things, even like the temperature and humidity and stuff like that, because yeah. I have made the mistake of, priming too cold or too hot mm-hmm. and it 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 can tend to lead to very ugly you're results. increasing your chance of problems there for mm-hmm. sure correct so, so. Cool. so we'll check back and see how it went yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks stay tuned next yep. time yep. Yep. <laughs> man you guys led me astray all my all my models are fuzzy and terrible now how do i get it off <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so i've been working on this three foot long 3d printed mansion it's going to be part of uh, war game tables for batman miniature game and uh, marvel crisis protocol so it can sub in as an xavier institute table for for the crisis protocol and when i play that and it can be a wayne manor or some other richie mansion table for a batman game so it's it's this is this the stls i picked up were 
kind of a, they were really easy to to con, to get everything and they, they really don't need any any supports and it took i don't know i must have 50 maybe 100 hours into three into the printer time on printing all the components i don't know i had to have a spreadsheet to track all the different components that were in it like when i successfully this is the biggest project i've ever printed and it's fun and it, it finished and everything was done and of course then my printer the printer is now a little bit on the fritz i need to fine tune it but i made it successfully got all the printing done it was able to show up at the 25th anniversary for noble knight uh, yesterday as part of the Batman miniature game demos and the thing just wowed everybody that saw it. I, th- I feel like the pl- it might have been the thing that everybody was talking about uh, at the anniversary event, which is awesome. And <laughs> you know, it, I just can't say the thing, thing looks cool. And and you'll see the pictures on the website. It's I'm so glad I got that the 3D printer and I, it's just a little $150 Creality uh, Ender three, super entry level doesn't you know, like if you're patient with it you can get some really amazing print jobs off of it so that said i've also been super heavy into assembly of my giant backlog of batman miniature game models and when i say backlog i think i put together something like 40 or 50 models in the last two or three weeks <laughs> so <laughs> now now the laundry list of backlog of needing to get things painted is is there but uh one step at a time at least the assembly backlog is looking better <laughs> so you've reassembled your wall of shame so uh yeah you're gonna have to start reducing the number of models on that yeah i, I mean i made some progress this year already on that so it's it's looking better it's looking better yes So I guess we're up to me and my hobby projects, which I've actually been fairly busy for my level with hobby projects this last month. And when Ben started teaching me or Conzi started teaching me how to play Batman Miniatures game and I was really enjoying it, I said if I ever wanted to play another game with miniatures, I I told myself I needed to learn how to paint it and not rely on him to paint everything for me which is lovely, but Konzi says he can teach someone, anyone how to paint, so I am trusting that, and I got some Arcanists, an Arcanist crew for Malifaux, which I have been busy uh, putting those together. I need to base them still. They are actually a lot of fun to put together for me. They're like these tiny 3D puzzles, so like I could just sit there all day figuring out how to assemble them, Uh, So that is kind of my big thing right now is that I'm working my way to creating a Malifaux crew. And then hopefully there will still be someone in the Madison area that will be playing Malifaux by the time I'm done (laughs) that I can play against. Um, But since I know BMG is going to be around and I very much do enjoy playing that, I have put together some additional train just to give us some more variety for our tables um, I put together a drawbridge of sorts, or bridge, I think it is, and a carousel. Um, those are both by TT Combat and Dice Kings. I think they look pretty cool when they're done. Now they're in Konzi's pile of shame of stuff to be painted because I'm not allowed to paint things like that. that that's my own thing yeah, that I'm not there's painting. A, there's a backlog of terrain that needs to get painted, too. 
a big mansion was in the way. Uh, yeah. Hey, that's done. That's that's at least painted. That's right. tabletop yeah. now. I got to get mm-hmm. some more parts to that whole table put together. But yeah, that's coming together nicely. So yeah, no Balafoe models are in famously uh, uh, well known for their exceptional challenge to assemble for plastic model kits because of all of the incredibly tiny pieces that you have to scratch your head and go, why did they mold it that way? So the fact that you're enjoying it. Just means you're uh, maybe uh, you know a little sick and twisted there on the assemb- on what how, what you enjoy about assembly uh, of things. So. I, I, I you've had me help you assemble some other miniatures, and this is so much more enjoyable for me. So I just a- send me all your Malifaux miniatures. I'll assemble them. <laughs> she, she's a special for- form of sadist in this one. So. All right. Well, if you if you need help assembling your Malifaux models, or you'd like to check out anything in our hobby corner and all of the beautiful pictures and things like that that we've been uh, on all of these projects we've been doing, make sure you head over to whiskodice.com and check it all out. But for now, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we will be joined by John from Terrible Games to tell us all about his latest game that's coming out very soon on Kickstarter. All right, and welcome back. Today, we're going to talk to John DeCampos from Terrible Games. Uh, he has a Kickstarter coming up very soon called, for a game called Black Mold. John, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. All right. So tell us a little bit about Terrible Games. Terrible Games is a scrappy little design studio based out of Baltimore, Maryland. It's me and a a number of my very close friends and fellow artists. We've all done various work. Uh, I mean, like one of our guys is a professional magician. Another one is a graphic designer, photographer. Another one does uh, video editing and uh, 3D animation. So we have kind of a a, a pretty tight-knit little crew that can do a lot of stuff. I think that what we're sort of like angling towards and we're still sort of young as a company is doing stuff that has like a very striking and uh, visionary artistic presence. We're, we're looking at a couple of new games that are going to be produced by other illustrators who have a vision for a board game. And I, I would like to help them see it come to fruition. Uh, but for now, we're, you know, we're pushing out our second game, our second like boxed game, Black Mold. And back in 2020, we did a game called Token Terror's Battlegrounds. Very nice. It sounds like you have quite the team working on this game design. What made you and these other individuals want to get into game design and start creating these board games? I've told this story a bunch of times, but it really is just the, this is this is just how it went down. Uh, we were we were playing some Magic: The Gathering. We were generating a ton of token creatures, and we just wanted to see a more fun, inexpensive, like durable miniature that you could use for your token creatures and magic. And we came up with the name Token Terrors, and we started designing miniatures, and the miniatures looked cool. And we were like, hey, we'll design a game. We thought it would maybe take, you know, six months, something like that. We spent many years developing the first game that we did and actually just kind of sinking our teeth into designing what we thought was going to be like, you know, an approachable, like pretty easy to do game for Token Terrors. I sort of caught a bug and just started designing more games and having a lot more fun. And uh, everybody else in the team has sort of just like taken that ride with me. You know, Lucas and Phil especially have been, uh, you know, really uh, helpful in designing our games and doing development work. And my partner Elizabeth helps out with developing our stuff now because we've been at this for six or seven years, but we only really hit the market officially this past year. Oh, okay. 
So what are the games? I mean, you mentioned Magic the Gathering. What other games? Like when you, Obviously, you guys have interests. What other games inspire you? Um, you know, it was it was funny because like at the same time, like basically like we looked at our first line of miniatures for token terriers and we we're like, these are really cool and board games are doing really, really well on Kickstarter. So we'll design this board game. And of course, after I started doing that, I started getting into the indie design, the indie design space and the other independent designers like, hey, if you see some projects on Kickstarter you like, you should back them. You should see what the process is like from the backer perspective. Then I caught that bug as well. I started getting stuff from Kickstarter, and I'm back in more projects. I think I have like 80 projects under my belt at this point. And then, you know, of course, now I have all these games piling up on my shelf. So me, my partner Elizabeth, and my best friend Lucas, we now have a, a, a running game night every Friday that we've been doing for, I don't know, maybe a year or two now. I can't even keep track. But the other stuff that I've been playing, I mean... Dungeons & Dragons it was one of my like early games that really got me into the tabletop space, as well as Magic the Gathering. Catan, obviously, was kind of a big one for me. I was around during that time when Catan really had a big splash culturally. And, um, I mean, the stuff we've been playing recently, I have a copy of Forgotten Death sitting right here that I need to get to the table. We've been playing Escape the Dark Sector is an awesome game that we love that came with an original soundtrack that's excellent. I just got the um, Endless Winter Paleo-American just sitting, <laughs> sitting waiting to get played. So we're really kind of dabbling into a lot of different things. And even as a company, we're looking at it from a point of inspiration, just like seeing what kind of mechanics sort of give us ideas, stuff that we want to explore, and also seeing like how those ideas are communicated in the rule booklet and how we experience them, experience them when they get to the table as well. Very nice. It sounds like it's a wide variety of interests with games that you are playing. Does that spill over to when you're designing these games? Like, what is, you've designed um, a tabletop RPG board game with miniatures. Now, this new one you're doing sounds like it's a bit of a cooperative-ish kind of game. You know, is there something that you really are passionate about designing that you're trying to do? Or how are you figuring out what styles you're doing? Yeah, I think that what we're looking for is just memorable moments at the table. I think, you know, there's there's definitely a place for, like, really crunchy, complex games that, like, you know, um, like, deep hobbyists want to just challenge themselves with. And I think to a certain extent, like, we want to offer some sort of thinky elements, certainly with Token Terrors, because it's a positional, semi-abstract skirmish game. There's definitely, like, a lot of two or three turns ahead sort of mindset stuff going on. Um, with Black Mold, what we're sort of angling towards is really more of an experience. Uh, one of our playtesters put it really well. He, I asked him what he thought, and he was like, you know what I like about this? This is a game you play to play, not play to win. There's no like points. You just have to like escape. <laughs> and with our breath-holding mechanic, we really are just anchoring all of our design choices around just your cognitive load being bombarded by ordeal after ordeal, just mitigating your vitality track and trying to make decisions and figuring out who to work with and which way to go to try and give you this experience. that's kind of harrowing and a little bit intense, but also like really fun, really memorable. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Thanks. So, <laughs> I mean, you sold me. Like... <laughs> me too. I'm, I'm ready uh, for this experience. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You you mentioned the tiny the token terrors and black mold. What I mean are those the primary games you're working on? Are there other things you're working on beyond those? Oh geez. So yeah, I'll just quickly we have a, a dexter a one v one dexterity game called Dice Destroy the Castle where you roll twenty dice and sort them by value and then spend those values to either man your army, put up a wall, or build a castle and stock your armory. We have this really neat 
kind of kinetic. You take two dice and use them. Those are your soldiers. I'm air quoting listeners. Um, those are your soldiers. And you take your ammunition, which is another D6, and you squeeze the two soldiers on either side and sort of angle them away and fire them at, at your opponent's castle. It's got these neat uh, castle and ruler uh, stained glass window uh, screens that you set up behind your castle so when all the dice splatter all over the place, they don't fly off the table. That one's really fun, but it's it, it's a back burner one. We have a uh, we have a, a real time drafting game called Warhorn that we've been working on. Most recently, I mean, really, I want to get back into doing more stuff with Token Terrors. We have like sky's the limit sort of expansion material for that uh, for that IP, and we're really excited to get more factions released for that because we are starting to see a player base sort of form around our first release. We did a, a tabletop RPG called Repugnant that we dumped hundreds of hours into, uh, made this totally beautiful booklet that's beautiful. And it's the world's most disgusting RPG, so beautiful might not be the right word. Um, but that's another, like, it's a whole world in a book that, like, we put it out as a zine, and I wish I had the bandwidth to just, like, engage with people about it and build more of a community around that game. Because there is, like, a, a whole world with all kinds of stuff in there. And just recently, we started working on a game that's sort of this like lane column positioning game called um, Project Sharkbite, which is going to be like an educational game where you are a researcher on a little vessel trying to gain uh, different data points of sharks as they swim by. So you're going to be moving your boat along this five by five grid of transparent shark cards that are going to have program movement. And as they pass by, you're going to collect data and turn that data into grants and then complete research papers it's this whole thing but we got quite a bit going on actually now that i sort of say it all i hadn't actually thought about it really wow that is a lot you have going on and i am definitely inspired to keep an eye out for all these new games coming out from from your group so let's talk about the game that we got together today to focus on black mold yeah. But, yeah. What inspired you to create this game? What what's going on with it? Some information about this new one. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Black Mold. Uh, we were I don't know how we were I don't know maybe six or eight months into lockdown. I was watching a documentary about designing board games. A notable game designer, like one of the big big names, like I can't remember right now but they showed up in this documentary and they were saying something about how like you should try to achieve something that at least feels novel like you know maybe maybe having something that's truly original is a little bit out of reach that might be kind of hard to do but having something that at least appears novel is a great way to try and like guide your designs and immediately just like i don't know where just kind of hit me in the head like a lightning bolt had the idea for a game called black mold where you hold your breath now to unpack that a little bit, I had just got done playing Last of Us 2, which is a game where you're in a post-apocalyptic world trying to survive amongst all of these, like, mushroom creatures. And also, we were living in the time of COVID when it was, like, really, really bad. So just being anywhere public and inhaling air, you know, it all has that mask on and stuff. Thinking about holding your breath. And the whole thing just sort of congealed. And uh, I called my co-designer, Phil Docolo, and I was like, hey, Phil, I got an idea for a game. It's called Black Mold, and your turn lasts as long as you can hold your breath. And I want it to be, like, creepy, and there's going to be, like, fungus poison spores in the air. And he took that and sort of uh, just made all of the core mechanisms that influenced the final game that we have now. That is definitely a, an approach I never would have thought of. That's really, like you said, that's novel. It's kind of an interesting concept for for how you control who has what turn. So 
Uh, it also keeps that person who likes to sit there for 14 minutes, you know, planning yeah. their turn. <laughs> yeah, you're dominating the, the board. You can sort of like the the co-op till it's not descriptor of the game. Like that that's what the table talk is about. When the other people are taking their turn, you're monitoring what they're doing because them building the compound has a direct impact on the decisions you're going to make during your turn. But you can start getting into conversations of like, look, when I get to this point, come and meet me here. Maybe we'll kill this thrall, and then I'll give you this, and we can craft this. And there's a lot of negotiation sort of pre-planning in the off-turns that can happen uh, during the, the player downtime portion of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so so what makes you really excited about this game? What what I mean, you've, you've kind of talked about it, but I mean, there's a lot of really interesting aspects of it. What really gets you pumping when you think about this game? I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing people's initial reaction. Uh, one of the things that I had, you know, that crossed my mind when I called Phil initially when this idea sort of struck me was the first thing I asked him. I was like, "Is this stupid? Like, <laughs> is this is this idea like totally not going to work at all?" And initially, we actually got some pushback from people like that were worried about like uh, you know breathing difficulties or people who are super duper healthy can just like have insanely long turns. Uh, so we do include a 60-second sand timer. I think, uh, yeah, what really excites me about it is uh, just letting people sort of dive into this immersive experience that we're hoping is going to sort of creep them out, hopefully not, like, cause any major schisms between people because we've had a little bit of that in playtesting where, like, certain choices really kind of piss people off. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, just kind of getting in, like, just this weird survivalist mindset for maybe an hour or two where you're kind of working together, but also watching your back at the same time and just creating like really long lasting memories where you have a lot of fun with people that you like to play games with. You guys just want to offset the original game. Cause you, you already mentioned Catan and Catan is already known as the friend killer. So oh, you, know, yeah. you just, you just got to supplant them. So <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> there, there, there's a goal for you. There's three ways you can win in Black Mold. The first way is everyone escapes, hooray, we all win together. That's fully co-op, right? The other way you can win is if you escape, it doesn't matter who else escapes. If you have the most nugs, which are like these pearlescent uh, mineral growths that come from the poison mushrooms, if you have the most of those, you win the game because you have the most money. And the the other way is to be last man standing, and it kind of depends on, there's different conditions that can guide how that hashes out. But we had a game where these two friends were playing, and they were the last two left in the compound. The other people had died. This was at a play test, I think, at, uh, at PAX or something like that. And um, before they both exited the compound, because they both wanted to win, they used each of their interact actions or their discard actions before they took their turn to just get rid of all their nugs. They were totally transparent with each other. Just like, I have this many nugs. Do you have any nugs? He's like, I have this many. We're going to discard our nugs. We'll both leave, and then we'll both win together. I thought that was kind of sweet and awesome. <laughs> I'm picturing them skipping out of there with their ha- holding their hands, singing a yeah. little song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who needs money? We have each other. Yep, yep. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll create a soundtrack for all the different endings for you. You do so, have a soundtrack. Do you really? Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah. Is it a spooky soundtrack type of... Uh... Yes, it's done by a uh, a musician and chiptune artist, or dungeon synth chiptune artist in California who goes by Vandalorum, and he did a full original soundtrack for us. Uh, it's really quite excellent. You can actually listen to a couple teaser tracks on Bandcamp right now. Oh, neat. I will have to go check that out after this. So you are going to be launching on Kickstarter soon. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about dates, what we could expect from your Kickstarter? 
anything else that way oh yeah for sure yeah we launch on october 20th um we're still sort of figuring out what the price is going to be per box. We need to crunch a couple numbers, but it's hovering around somewhere between 50 and 60 bucks for the core edition. Again, like I know that like October 20th from when we're talking is just now the end of September. <laughs> we're still figuring out some stuff. So I'm not sure if like some of the other content we have developed is going to be strictly add-ons, if we're going to pepper it in as stretch goals. Um, I know that the the cassette version, physical cassette of the soundtrack is going to have a uh, a J card insert that's actually a player interface for a solo roll and write called Black Mold Solitude. That if you pair it with a with a notepad, there's a really awesome solo game that you can you can try out as well. Uh, we're definitely going to have that as an add on. Um, and yeah, we're just we're we're gonna we're gonna figure out a couple of things. But yeah, around that price point, and there is a lot of added content. We're just trying to figure out how to implement it. And how long will the Kickstarter run for? We are going to run approximately 20-some-odd days. I think we end on the last Thursday of October, or the first Thursday of the next month. It'll be, okay. it'll be around 20 days, give or take. Okay. Right. So if someone's so, not listening to this right away, they have a couple days to go. Yeah, yeah, you'll have, a, you'll have a bit of a window. So... Now the big question, and I know, you know, you'd love to have a crystal ball and, uh, you know, be able to predict all the fun things like shipping concerns, but what are you guys targeting, you know, for when the actual game will come out? So in a perfect world, we will deliver in April. That is insanely optimistic. And I understand that. We are going to tell everybody in the Kickstarter campaign that it'll take a year because that's actually reasonable and that's probably more realistic. Even if we do everything right, if we deliver within a year, I'd say that's that's about right. Um, but we're going to push for April. There's really not a lot of stuff we need to do cleanup-wise. We have a couple changes to make to the packaging. We have to make some updates to the rules. Uh, the added content is basically finished. So we're hoping to try and like fast-track this thing and try to get it at least in route by the springtime, at least on a boat by the spring. Very cool. So then we'll have it to play for Halloween next year. Yes. That is a yes. <laughs> well, you know, assuming everything's nothing major happens. Yeah. 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 No, this will have to maybe be on one of our uh, Halloween lists for 2023. Sure. That would so. be great. <laughs> So the so you've talked a little bit about how like what the game is about the Kickstarter, like how we can get the game, uh, support it that way. Can you tell us a little bit more about the gameplay? Like how do the players interact with it? Is it you know what's it going to kind of generally look like for them? Sure. Um, so each player is going to have their own unique prisoner that they're going to play as. Each prisoner has a base number of 16 spaces that will feature a different sequence of three different symbols and then varying numbers of death symbols, which are these white spaces that are overlaid over the actual prisoner character art. Um, the death spaces represent like your last bout of defiance in the face of death. And if they get covered by a certain kind of damage, you'll either be straight murdered and eliminated from the game, or you will change into a fungal thrall. And your win condition will change from escape to make sure no one else escapes. Uh, you'll be equipped with a number of thrall action cards. And what's really neat is that um, thralls actually generate onto into play throughout the game uh, at random. Um, all of your actions as a thrall are actually shared among all of the thralls in play. It's sort of a mycelium hive mind sort of thing going on. 
Um, so it can get really bad if a player starts to control thralls because when the AI is driving them, they're pretty contained. But when a player starts using them, they get pretty intense. Um, but yeah, as a prisoner, before you get changed, before you die, uh, you will basically spend your turn deciding whether or not to heal, constantly mitigating damage tokens that are going to be accruing onto your vitality track. Um, in order to craft and find items, you will undoubtedly take damage, so there's a little bit of a give and take there, but as you discover items, you're going to use them to either defend yourself against other prisoners, try to kill fungal thralls that are generating or craft um, really awesome items. So you can make stuff like a shroud that will um, decrease the amount of damage you passively take at the end of each turn from the surrounding spore clouds, or a shiv, which gives you a plus three to defense or attack, or the coveted torch, which if you can build a torch and light it, you're basically like god mode at that point. You no longer have to hold your breath during your turn. You can move through three areas freely through each turn. Thralls can't generate in areas you're in. It's like awesome, but it's, it's kind of tough to make, and you really do have to collaborate to make it work. Um, and as players are going to be making these different decisions, they're going to decide whether or not to search, which they could get them damage, or they're going to be traversing. So when you're traversing, what you're doing is you're revealing an area card that has a number on it, and that number is your traverse check. Each prisoner has their own unique deck of cards called their decision deck, and using one hand while holding their breath. I know this might be hard to picture in the, in the audio world, but... You're going to be looking at that number. Let's say there's a four. You're going to reveal four cards from decision deck, which are going to have these different shaped lines going diagonal, side to side, top and bottom. And you have to flip, rearrange, and set them up in a continuous tableau, creating one linked line all the way, a neural path, if you will. Once you create this neural path, you've met the traverse check, and you can reveal another card and continue exploring the compound. People do that as part of the co-op part of the game, too, because when they start to explore the compound, everybody else at the table is like, no, 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 don't attach the path that way. You have to go the other way. Otherwise, we're going to things are going to get messed up. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, touching on what I said earlier, sorry if I'm if I'm talking to you, <laughs> I'm sort of like uh, if I'm sort of jabbering here. The the whole the whole experience while you're holding your breath is like you're rolling dice, you're counting the number of outcomes on your dice, you're drawing an item card, you're getting a new a new area card, you're revealing your tableau, you're linking everything together, you're getting another area card. All this stuff is sort of happening at once. You're running out of oxygen, your brain is starting to feel sort of panicked, and you start to make bad choices. And that's sort of where that's at the crux of the game is just like dealing with the consequences of your actions and uh, trying to just escape alive, whether that means working with the other prisoners or possibly abandoning them. It, you know, it depends on what situation you're in. Wow, that's a lot. To, I mean, my brain is trying to wrap around it, but I mean, it sounds really cool. We're going to have some we're going to have some demo videos up very soon. By the time this episode goes up, if you go to. um I think it's we're on YouTube. I think we're under either Token Terrors or Terrible Games. But if you look us up, we will have some basic mechanic overview stuff going on. Uh, additionally, uh, Quacklope did a playthrough with me. I went and go visited him. And we also have two other content creators who are doing some playthrough and overview stuff. So we will have some more visual assets for people to take a look at uh, before and during the campaign. Oh, that would be great. Oh, we won't complain if you throw one at us. I mean... But. <laughs> where do you where are you guys located madison wisconsin madison wisconsin all right let's talk after the episode maybe we can work something out all right all right um i was i did want to comment though i mean i i've been uh looking through some of your stuff and i will say some of the artwork it really caught my eye like i was looking at and i and uh for those of you who don't know i mean obviously you can't see it 
But uh, they have a Facebook group you can join. It has some samples of the art. They have it on some other places too. But I was really digging the character cards that you guys created. I mean, I know they're very, like some people, maybe black and white isn't their style. But I just was really digging, like just looking at one of those sample character cards. Like all the really neat things going on on that card and just the art style was amazing for me. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much. Yeah. I just really loved it myself and some of like the box sample box art that you guys had put together because I was looking at like your original one and then the latest iteration that you guys did it was really kind of started to jump out of the box like off the I don't know the box <laughs> it just kind of really popped so thanks yeah I mean the the big thing with the art direction on this one is first of all I'm not even gonna lie doing full color is a ton of work uh, it's it's it just adds so much more work that's not the reason why black mold is monochromatic uh it's monochromatic because I felt like with a title like black mold it should basically be as dark and gothic and spooky as we could get and uh just you know pale figures sort of superimposed over this just sea of speckled particled black void that whole sort of feel is what i saw in my head when we started unpacking this game visually and uh yeah i think mo i think it's working i mean mostly we've had a we've had a pretty good response well and that monochromatic will definitely jump out at people on the shelves at the game store too if you end up going that route because it's everything else is colored and then hey, it's black and white so Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, really, like if you're the Venn, if you meet the Venn diagram of like basically somebody kind of like me, like if you really love tabletop games, but you're into like grimdark settings and like death metal and like dungeon stuff like dungeon synth and like, you know, creepy things that you will land right on target to be interested in what Black Mold has to offer. <laughs> hey, that's a very specific group. I'm sure a lot of people though will be drawn to this. Hopefully, so. hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of I, I've I feel like there's been a lot of growth in the last few years in sort of that exploration dungeon type thing. There's been several things that have come out in that genre that, um, you know, I definitely think there's room in that genre for something like this. It's a really cool concept. John, is there anything we haven't talked about that you're just like, hey, something you want people to know about the game or terrible games or, you know, that we haven't covered? The only thing I would say is uh, please back the game on Kickstarter. Uh, that is hugely important to the success of this product for us as a company. Uh, we already know that we are going to be making a certain amount of this game, um, but the sales that we make during the Kickstarter campaign really, really do give us a, a an injection of confidence in what we're doing as a company and gives us a little bit of working capital to be able to really knock our projects out of the park as of now like you know we're not profitable we're still a really young company but me and the rest of my partners have just been you know kicking our own butts trying to get this game and all the stuff that we're working on to a high quality that's going to meet the standards of what people who back stuff on kickstarter look for so, you know, especially with the breath holding mechanism and stuff, I think that for anybody who's a collector, this could be a very interesting eyebrow raising addition to your collection, especially if you're bringing it to a playgroup who's never heard of it. And for people who are a little newer to the hobby, the rules, uh, our rule booklet is, you know, roughly half of it actually covers mechanism. But 
it, we try to be very thorough and specific in the way that we use all of the rule booklet to lay stuff out so that if you have any questions, if you need to cross-reference something, it's there. It's there for you to find if you need it. The core mechanisms themselves actually playing the game is fairly simple. So it does have an approachable mechanism that is going to get you immersed, is going to make you feel like you're, you know, you're in trouble, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's not going to like, it's not a point salad game with like 16 phases where you're going to be doing a million things and managing this crazy you know, like player interface that has nine million cubes on it. <laughs> like it's, you know, and nothing against those games, but uh, this one just is, uh, yeah, it's 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 approachable, but also should be interesting for hobby players. No, oh, it sounds like a great game and definitely something that we will be checking out once it goes live. And everyone else that's listening to this right now should go pause this podcast and go check it out. I'm back it. So you have some fun, spooky game to play for next Halloween. So Yeah. Oh, and also, I almost forgot. Uh, last thing. We are planning to do a Kickstarter gift. Uh, so this will be a three-character expansion that will charge some amount of money for after the campaign. But during the campaign, it'll get added to your pledge for free. Hey, oh, we always love those reason. extra little bits that get thrown in. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, we, yeah, we didn't want to do an exclusive. I know there's a lot of uh, there's some conjecture about that in the in the hobby. We want anybody who wants it to be able to access it, but you'll access it at a cost of no additional money if you get it during the Kickstarter campaign. Because we do appreciate people having to eat those shipping costs. Um, so we want to give you a little bit of a bonus to sort of offset that a little bit, and hopefully, uh, you know, people people appreciate it. Well, I know we definitely will appreciate that. That's a uh, <laughs> that's pretty fun. It's always nice to get a little bonus for you know what if you think it feels as a bonus uh, with these things so you guys like you guys uh, like kickstarter exclusives uh i mean i i don't necessarily back a kickstarter based on the specific yeah. exclusive and half the time i find even if they call it an exclusive it's gonna be released it's just a question of what timing mm-hmm. uh, yeah. afterwards yeah. So. i agree if yeah for for me, like I'd rather it like how you're doing it as a as a bonus that's now that I'm not paying for, and then later on, hey, everyone can get it, so everyone else can get the game if they weren't able to do the Kickstarter for some reason or miss it, then they're not necessarily missing out. So. Okay, well, I'm still sort of on the fence. I was hoping you guys were going to help push me to one side or the other because I'm thinking about doing an envelope of alternate endings for the Kickstarter copies only. <laughs> uh, well. Something like that. It's not mechanical, <laughs> yeah. you know. It does. It has no bearing on the mechanism of the game. It's just, it's just right. some cool extra. It's just extra story and atmosphere. So I don't know. We're we're thinking about some, doing some stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think some people really dig dig it and get into it. I mean, I know, I've seen a bunch of people go nuts about the stretch goals and all that stuff. Um, but I've also seen some very simple kickstarters that we're actually for some fairly large companies. But they're just like, we know what this game is. It's already been designed. There's not a million stretch goals, sorry, but you know the you're, the advantage is you get to have it probably a solid six months before everybody else. I mean, we'll get it shipped way before it's going to hit the stores, you know. So, you know, eventually, yeah, it's going to be in the stores, but you're going to get it first. You're going to get a chance to play it and go. So, I mean, I've I've backed both, and I've I've backed some kickstarters that did some absolutely insane exclusives and they added a billion things to the game because they went like suddenly they're you know they're sitting there looking at 
you know, they wanted 700,000 and they got 4 million, you know? So yeah. Yeah. It's like hard for us to say we can't add anything at that, but you know, yeah. yeah. Well, I would love to be staring that problem down. That would be, uh, that would be quite welcome. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck to you with that and with your Kickstarter. And Thank we you. so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us tonight and come on our podcast, explain this new game that you have coming out. Uh, thank you for having me. No, the pleasure's all over here. I appreciate you guys taking the time with me today. Hey, folks, this is the Conzi of the Most. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about Misty Mountain Games here in Madison, Wisconsin, where you can find CCGs, RPGs, board games, minis, paint and hobby supplies for your all of your tabletop gaming experience and needs. If you can't find it online, give them a phone call or swing on by their brick-and-mortar store uh, here on the east side of Madison. Don't worry, that is MistyMountainGames.com. Check them out today. All right, and we are back. Wow, that was a pretty awesome interview. So now we're going to go ahead and get into our main topic for this episode. The Night Cage from Smirkin' Dagger Games. This game was a game that we picked up on the Gen Con that returned, that first Gen Con that returned from the big COVID shutdown and stuff uh, that was you know, fairly low in attendance. It was about 30 or 35,000 people, I think. What was that, 2021, I think, uh, was that Gen Con? So. Yes. It was probably the game that a lot of people were excited at that Gen Con to play. And we did a little open play thing, I think, on Saturday night in the open play area. And it just kept getting to the table. It probably got it probably got played a dozen times before it left Gen Con, our copy. So it was a it came out of Gen Con, was super popular. We got it to the table. We've had it to the table several times since then is a game where it's a cooperative game where you're placing tiles and exploring this maze, trying to find a key and then get everyone to a gate before you run out of tiles in the stack. The board and the art and everything uh, help add to this theme of you being in this dark, lost cavern uh, and it, it really is just a really interesting uh, game and co-op kind of experience just uh start into it let's dive right into those components and talk about those because i think that's a big part of what this what really sets this game apart so guys what did you think about the components i really enjoyed the materials i guess and just kind of how it was designed like I don't know, I was amused by the tile stack being like the candle holder thing. Yeah. Like all the me mechanics are really nice. Like they're nice cardboard tiles, you know, like nice thick ones. The candle markers are kind of neat and individual, easy to tell apart. The keys were like kind of like a cast metal or whatever. Like those were the only thing that maybe like let me down slightly. I guess a normal key would just be like metal like that too. So I guess it kind of works, but that was like the one component that, I don't know, it didn't amuse me too much. Maybe I am just used to seeing unpainted metal miniatures and it's like a gut reaction for me or something. <laughs> but, yeah, it's on the block to do, okay. But definitely the artwork was pretty cool. And yeah, I don't know, the components seemed good and I liked, yeah, just the setup of the design for sure. See, I'll say I liked that those keys were that metal, that 
unpainted silverish metal color <laughs> because if they were cardboard like the rest of the components a lot of them were i would have felt let down like you don't want the little key to be cardboard there's no reason for it it gave it some little heft in your hand something to kind of play with when you had it and the silver color went along with the the rest of the color scheme which were true. black and you know where they were black yeah. and white and a lot of the keys i have are this brassy gold color too so i was happy to see that they kind of match that um one thing for me a lot of times with games is i like the colors i like it to be inviting with the colors and i was worried the first time we took this out of the box and it was black and white and grays and i was like oh gosh this is gonna be depressing to play it actually isn't it's actually really cool and having those colors like that just immerses you in yeah. to the fact that you are in this magical labyrinth trying to get yourself out of this prison. So I thought it made it kind of creepy for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. yeah. That's the idea. It's supposed <laughs> it, to be a creepy game. The art and style it... is very much and and um I think very much Suzanne, this uh, this game from an art style reminded me of the interview that we just did on the game Black Mold because it has that same kind of dark style. But I think I'm kind of with Brian on the keys a little bit, and it has. Uh, I mean, I like the fact that they made the metal. Yeah. But I think the thing that throws me off is, as a miniature painter, I'm like, but I can see the mold lines and the flashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like maybe just a quick wash on them to. Kind yeah, of or something. It's you know, on the, the to do list, guys. Uh, but other than that, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to second. I think that the you know the the cardboard they use in this is a very nice, sturdy. I'm not worried about damage of the components. They could be pulled out a lot of times, but. I do like the artwork style. The artwork style worked great for that kind of immersion into the um, just this you're in this dark foreboding maze and you're just trying to find it. So, yeah, I mean, you have candlelight. So there's not a lot of color when you're in that kind of darkness. So, yeah, it works well. So I think uh, Suzanne and I are the only two that have actually taken a good look at the rule book itself. So. I'm going to say the rule book was relatively well laid out. It seems to me like a little long, but there's a bunch of optional things that you can add in to really ramp up the difficulty. Like any, uh, any game like this, uh, you know, the, the uh, games where they're cooperative. So that's, it. it's nice. It has a lot of that added and it's all near the tail end of it. So you really, it's only like, I don't know, maybe four or five pages of actual rules that you really need to go through. And mostly, um, you know, the, the handout that's on the player's aid and whatnot really covers the game in a lot of detail. So even when we just played it just now, I didn't feel like, and we'd all, I think, played it before. So it wasn't like a, hey, I have to have this heavy lift on a rules recap. Yeah, but the rules, occasionally they're, it's a little difficult. Like we had a, a th- situation come up today and we're like, trying to find in the rules like where it specifies and it wasn't there and you know then we had to go you know even looking at the internet it wasn't maybe maybe it was decisive i don't know but we just played it and played it the way it was and and had had fun with it but uh overall it's an okay rule book there are definitely things that i could think are be just touched a little bit better but it's an okay rule book what do you think i agree with you about everything that you've said related to the rule book so far my thing with it is if you are playing this game past the introductory beginner easy level whatever it was that we played at you need to have the rule book there to 
know how the different monsters are going to react in situations. Unless you are playing this game all the time and have this great memory for how all the different nuances, you need to keep it there. And so with that being said, the, the rule book fits great in the box. It's just a little bit big to have on um, the game table and having to flip through it all the time. I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but... I think like uh, uh, the player aids are really good, but yeah, if you had like a, a little card or something for each of the monster types, that was just kind of like, oh, here's your monster profile with the rules for that. You could just have them sitting out so you mm. wouldn't have to like, sure. well, which page in the rule book was this special monster's rules on or whatnot. That might be a really nice little buff to it. I mean, it's hindsight on, on game design, and, and I'm sure there's a cost factor there, but some of those little details seem to be just maybe a touch missing from a rules perspective that might streamline gameplay just a touch. Was there at least like one reference page for the different monsters or would you have to be like, I think it's like two or three pages Ugh, of, kind of... of rules for monsters. Frustrating. But I, I guess there's, reference. you could make a reference card with streamlined versions right. of the rules for them that you could have like either one card per monster or, you know, double-sided. Yeah. I was just wondering so, how it was Somebody's currently. probably beat oh. us to this idea and put something on BGG already, but... Because having, like, one, you know, like, the back page of the manual or something be a no, reference wouldn't a, be too bad, but, yeah, if you have to, like, flip pages, through pages, actually. that's pretty annoying. Yeah, so yeah that's I, why think I was it's wondering. a few pages, and then there's a lot of text on each monster. And it was actually my first play today, and I think I had all the rules for, like, the base version we played understood in like two minutes or something yeah. like oh, that. Yeah. So the game is like it's that card really sums it up, and yeah, you can just kind of dive right in. And... There's, there's almost more rules in the book than needs to almost right. needs to be, and then mm -hmm. for a couple of situations, it's like there are a couple of little iffy situations that can occur, like what happens when you take damage from a monster and. And there are no more tiles to draw, which is one we got hung up on today. Like, what should happen? Seems like nothing happens, which seems opposite of what the rest of the game should be. So, uh, from a rules perspective, rulebook perspective, it's a decent rulebook. It's a good rulebook, but it's it has a couple of shortcomings that I think could make it a better, like an amazing, a great rulebook. From a feel or flow of the game, things we want to talk about here, like how is the game? You mentioned that it was really easy to pick up, Brian. How was the immersion? Did you feel like you were in a, a dark labyrinth? Did you feel like the game conveyed that? Uh, and, and how did you feel about the game overall, like his gameplay perspective? Yeah, I think I already said that I thought the artwork made it like kind of creepy feeling already. And then, like, how the whatever labyrinth would kind of disappear as you moved and like change depending on where you went was pretty cool so I, that kind of i don't know that was really neat to me i guess i like that mechanic a lot yeah. and i think thematically it's really really good because as you're going through this maze your pawn for lack of a better word lights up the four tiles orthogonally adjacent to you you don't get to light up tiles that are diagonal to you so if you move you're going to drop off a number of tiles from the board that you no longer light up. And so those just disappear into the darkness. And that mechanically and thematically works so well to kind of keep this just mysterious, like oppressive atmosphere. Like I, I think it's a pretty, pretty genius mechanic. Yeah. And those tiles are actually like out of the game at that point too. So yeah. there's like no going back. It's like, yeah. you're really like, whatever you're, as soon as you can't see it, it's gone kind of thing. And then that really worked with the, the candle tile stack too like it makes it i don't know kind of thematically like your candle's yeah. burning down and you're seeing your time running out 
as you're trying to figure a way through the maze or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. really part of it. And I was going to play that. There's actually an official soundtrack that, oh, that really? goes with this oh. game. And I was going to play that, but my Green Bay Packers were too busy losing uh, <laughs> in London. And I was watching that while, while we were... Uh, playing the game so unfortunately we've missed out that part of the uh experience but yeah it's just a it's on youtube it's an official yeah. uh soundtrack that goes with this yeah we should have played at night and like yeah whatever yeah. dim yeah. like played by candlelight or something <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah well yeah. i mean I, I thought it was good i love that mechanic in it i mean i don't know i mean i don't know if it's i don't know if the game's just not 100 percent my jam i mean it, it was it was fine, but I mean, it was like, it felt like at the end, it was like, I don't know if we, like, we almost all were kind of like having to, like, which, I mean, it is fine. We're kind of working it out, like, okay, how do we do this? Because, I mean, we were very close to just not winning that close. game. It was close. It was very close. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember the last time we played it too. Okay, I think we played it around Halloween the last time. Yeah, uh, probably. But, <laughs> but uh, it was, I mean, it, it, it was just one of those, if you're not thinking three, four, five, six, seven steps ahead and how to, how much is, is stack is left in the candle, I mean, you can be like, yeah, great. One person's all the way across the board and there's no way for them to get you. I was so Congratulations, close, yeah. you've now lost the game because... If you're not thinking about like this person needs a path and we need to keep it lit and like and keep the monsters away from it. So how do we strategically move to drop monsters into the darkness and gone from the game? It was it's interesting from that perspective because it's a little bit of a mind mess, but I don't know. Something in it just isn't like like I enjoyed it, but I didn't like, oh, my God, this was amazing. I think we should say this is I mean, I think it's a difficult game. Like it's hard to win this game. I thought we got like. pretty lucky today. Yeah, yeah I think like, we did too. I thought our game went pretty smooth, and we like we barely made it. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, amazing how fast like, the tile stack burned through mm-hmm. with five players. I, yeah. and it, I don't and we didn't think through adds like, that many more tiles or, or anything for a five player game. Yeah. It it definitely doesn't add that many more tiles. We did seem to go through. I think I had a lot fewer turns than when we played this as a two player right. game, but. One of the things I do kind of like is that, yes, you need to kind of plan and think through where people are more at the end of the game, but at the same time, things are disappearing and you don't know exactly what's coming up, especially early on. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to go over here and see what happens and go over here and see what happens. And then, oh, shoot, that path is now gone. Uh, So there's a little... Like you can look at it and be real serious about it, or you can just be more adventurous and you know for the first half of the game and yeah. just see, hey, what's going to come up and everything. Uh, so I I do kind of like that part of it. I've played this a number of times. Like Gonzi mentioned, we played it with twelve <laughs> times or something. Yeah, at we least think a I, dozen times at Gen Con, and I loved teaching it to new people and seeing them be really excited about it. If I had played in every single one of those games. <laughs> With the base monsters, I would have been really burned out and gotten a little tired of it. I think we had a 50-50 if people won or lost, maybe. Uh, or more. Yeah, there was- I think I think we had it to a point at Gen Con where we were like, if it was if one of the two of us was playing in the game, it was never going to be a loss, right? But when if it was all new players playing it. Then it was 50-50 or so mm-hmm. if they were winner, winning or losing. So. Yeah, and I should have tracked more closely or tracked at all. But 
you kind of tell based on how they were going through and how much planning they were doing initially, the groups that would try and plan everything out from the beginning as to like where the first your first starting tile was going to oh. be would end up losing. The people that were like, oh, this looks like fun. I'll put it here. Um, and just kind of it was a little bit more random for the starting. They, at least the ones I was teaching, they seem to be doing much better towards the end with, so, you know, successful. So I did want to ask, since you guys have played it so many times, I, I guess I foresee a potential problem with this game that there's kind of a right way to play it. And once you know how to do that, once you kind of get what you're supposed to do, then it's just down to what order the tiles come out in. It's sort of luck at that point. Do, have you experienced that? Does it, is it only an issue with the base game? Like, does it mix it up enough to add elements to it? Uh, you know, does it, does it say me after this so, many plays? So the base game comes with a lot of optional add-on monsters, which we have barely explored after as many plays as we've had on it. So I don't feel like I have the game completely solved. Like we talked about the spill in a previous episode from, again, from Smirk and Dagger. And that that feels very much like a pandemic wannabe game. In my plays with it, I feel like like when Suzanne and I play it, we have it kind of solved. Like we, we really have a very good approach to it. And I... I I think we can ramp up the difficulty and and be successful at it. And in this game, it doesn't feel quite like that. I like I, I like I know that you need to early in the game you want to make sure that you're popping out enough enough tiles so that you have a chance to find those keys and hopefully not have a surge of gates come come out early because that that could spell doom for you too. <laughs> Besides that, like I haven't really developed a, a, a hey, I'm going to win every time strategy. Hmm. Okay. So I think we have a hey, I'm going to win every time strategy when we're on the base game. And kind especially of. when it's the two of us playing it. We have not played all the monsters, and I think for me, that's the only part that's still intriguing with this game and challenging is I want to try all the monsters and experience them, and I want to see how that changes some of the gameplay. Yeah. Um, like I said, I love teaching it to new people and having them play it and playing with them, but it's not for me a game where I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to get this out. It were two, just the two of us. This is the game. I have to play, even though I've played it a bunch of times. I, I, and it's worth noting that this game, when it breaks down to less than four players, that you're still playing it basically as a four-player game. Like it doesn't have like you end up proxying. Oh, really? The oh. candle marker. So it's really just a four-player or a five-player game, uh -huh. uh, and any other variant number of players, you're proxying. Uh, some of the other other marker the player candle markers, and that's to make sure you're churning through the tiles fast enough. Do you fully uh, control them, or do yeah, they? You fully okay, control them. Okay. It doesn't have like a an AI for any of them, so you, mm. you're actually controlling them. Gotcha. When we talk about monsters ramping up, like just as an example, like the the base monster, if you any player moves into its line of sight. Uh, it will trigger a damage ray that basically fires off the monster in the all orthogonal directions. And every player who is hit by that ray causes you to discard three tiles 
from the top of the stack, which can be absolutely devastating. But it's relatively easy to mitigate any of those monsters ever doing any damage to you. The next monster level up is a mo- you is you replace those monsters and you replace all the key tiles and now you have the monster the- in order for you to get the tiles you're going to have to discard uh, tiles from it because it, the the keys that you're trying to get to get out are embedded in the monsters and so you have <laughs> to like cu- you have to move into the monster I think you can move into it even from the front but it's maybe you don't take any damage. I can't remember the specific. I think rules. you didn't only take played... damage if you hit it from the back. Or yeah, something. it was like vulnerable in oh, the back. Yeah, but yeah. You, you then you'd have to like strategize about like, oh crap, I have to keep this monster on the board, and it fires. La- I think it even fired laser beams from the, like three directions, just not the fourth direction. Mm-hmm. You have to try to like get around it to the backside of it to be able to get to it. So it took a lot more like planning, and then a little bit of. We I, we played with yeah. them once, and I think that was the first time we introduced Matt to it, and we I I remember losing. Yeah, it was it was kind of brutal at the end, but I mean, I mean, I just think of it, and the and I I mean, a lot of us, like three of us, really haven't played the game that much, so for us, it's like we probably don't have the strategies like you do, but I mean, we were out of tiles and out of time by the end, and yep. like we were watching one person going, "Will he make it, or are we gonna lose yeah. it right here?" But um, yeah, I mean, and, and some of that I do equate to uh, luck of the draw because we had, uh, like, we got two or three of the tie, like the keys really early. And then, like, we went on this key drought for a while and we just couldn't find a dang key. And then at the end, we're like, oh, we're, there's still like four monsters coming out and there's only about six tiles left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we knew there was going to be some ugliness there at the end. but So here at Wisco Dice, we rate board games when we review them on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, 1 being like you're falling into a bottomless pit with your candle going out. Or a 10 where you escape and have a gourmet dinner waiting for you while being surrounded by cute fuzzy puppy dogs. So let's start with you, Brian. Where do you rate this game? Well, I think part of my trouble, like I enjoyed playing it once, but um, I think part of my trouble, like maybe Justin was hinting at it, like I get frustrated where you're beaten by the randomness kind of like I like, I don't know, either a game being like a set kind of difficulty. I know you can ramp it up or down with the monsters a little bit, but you still have kind of a big luck of the draw. And um, I felt like that about spill a little bit too. So that brings it down a bit for me. And then like, like this game is intended to be like you're winning together kind of thing, but like you're kind of playing individually, but I feel like you end up like, it's like five people versus the game basically kind of when you're playing, like, I mean, you can choose to do your own thing and kind of maybe do something stupid or whatever, but you know, generally you're trying to play together and like make smart moves and stuff like that. So it kind of really felt like everybody was working together. You know, usually you'd get input from other people when you're moving and stuff like that. So I think I was only going to give it like a four or a five, maybe like it's not unplayable, but, and like, I enjoyed playing it, but like those things kind of bring it down in interest level to me, I okay. guess. So. Interesting. So I'm going to give this one a seven and I do enjoy the game and I will always play the game if someone wants to play it. It's getting a little bit too samey 
for me. I think I just need to explore the the rest of the monsters we haven't, and maybe I will change my mind. But I definitely, it's definitely a good game, and it's fun to play. But for me, it's a seven. I put it at a a firm six. I'm kind of like Brian. I'm a little concerned about the replayability. You know, I actually don't mind the randomness. I mean, anybody who's ever enjoyed a good game of Pandemic and watched their world like think they were ahead of the game and watch their world come crashing down in a matter of seconds. You just have to kind of eat that and, and roll with it. That doesn't bother me, but uh, components were solid. It's a, it's, you know, it was fun to play, but I'm, I'm like, Brian, I don't know if I'd pull it out all the time kind of thing. Yeah. With part of that, like I was just thinking like, you know, where you're playing against the game or whatever, like old Warhammer quest or whatever, like you kind of expected calamity and death or whatever and not to make it out or whatever. But as far as randomness goes, like you kind of expected it, it, like the random to be bad, but like, I guess the play, the journey to get there isn't enough or whatever. Like it's not it like the gameplay isn't enough where I don't feel bad, like losing when, you know, you get like six bad draws in a row or something like that. It's like, okay, I guess we lost. I guess you can re-rack it or whatever, but like, eh. Anyway, not to sideline it there, but how about Justin? Yeah, some things I like about this game. I I really like the artwork. It's like this stark, creepy, black and white, oppressive feel to it. It, it really does a good job at tying in with the mechanics and theme of the game to just sell that creepy atmosphere. So I really like that. I generally like tile tile laying games and this is kind of a interesting tile laying logic puzzle kind of game. What you just said, Brian, actually maybe maybe solidifies my decision to <laughs> call this a six, which I, I I so I like it. I like playing it. I think it's fun. But yeah, the what you kind of go through is cool and fun, but like is it enough to for is is it enough to justify how difficult the game is? For my opinion, like I'm not sure, and and I do feel like maybe there's some sameness. That's a possibility. I still enjoy it. Um, I think it looks really cool, and I think it's fun to bust out on for like a Halloween board game night or something like that uh, as a quick game to play. Not one that I would be pulling out all the time personally, but it's a cool like it's a it's a it's a neat kind of experience to to go through a couple times. So it's it's a six for me. So this is I think right might actually enjoy this game the most out of all of us i would put it at about a seven seven and a half um i definitely am very ready to play it i shouldn't say very i'm ready to play it a lot and i do bring it out to the table probably more than it maybe deserves because i enjoy it because i enjoy the game itself and and i like the theme and the immersion and the art of this game that much and I so I walk away from the experience enjoying that piece of it a lot but when you when I think about like hey am I going to tell stories about our cooperative experience that we just had in this game versus like say something like the old Warhammer quest days where it can be a little random and whatnot it doesn't it doesn't leave you walking away telling that like oh hey we just barely survived or we just snuck away or the monsters just feel kind of dry. Like they have really cool names on them and, but the art and whatnot on them, like it, it is a bit, is really creepy, but they just don't, it's not as impactful. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like when a, when a monster hits the board, it's like, Oh, 
well, how do we make that tile disappear? It doesn't like, oh, it's I'm not terrified of the monster. I'm like, oh, I just got to solve the puzzle about making that monster disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those kind of little stories, I think that would, I, I don't know how to fix it in the game. I think mechanically the game works great, but it, but it, but that, those kind of little things kind of help it lose some of that magic, right? And and that, and that story part. That said, I am. I like this game quite a bit and I'm really glad I have it and I'm don't think I have a, any regrets about ever having played it a bunch. So solid seven and a half. It's a great, it's a great uh, Halloween time year of the game uh, to play because of the, all of the immersive elements that they have around it. And of course the, the night cage, coffee bug that I have that also <laughs> as you drink your coffee your candle goes out which <laughs> 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 I love so alright so anyways on today's episode we caught up on the games that we've been playing uh, including Phantom Inc. from Resonim and Obscurio from Libelud. we then caught up on all of our hobby projects in our hobby corner of course you can check out those hobby projects on our, our website in the episode Post for this release uh, so that website wiscodice.com of course we had that interview with John from Terrible Games and uh, make sure you check out his upcoming Kickstarter uh, Black Mold uh, coming soon or probably uh, live or around live when this episode releases thank you so much for listening make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.